Welcome everybody to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host Viz and it is my honor tonight to have writer-director Eric Bress with us. Eric, how you doing tonight, man? Oh, I lost your mic. Hold on. Hold on. I can't hear you. I don't know why I lost your mic there. Okay, got me now? Got you now. I'm just saying it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I am very familiar with the show. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's, let's let it rip. Let's let it rip. Absolutely. Let's just get right into it. Ghosts of War. Well, before we even get to Ghosts of War, I got to tell you, man, I looked over your entire resume and you are batting a thousand from both critics and fans of like, you do not have a single strike. The fans love your work. The critics love your work. Besides talent, what's your secret? Uh, I would say for anyone even trying to start, it's uh, a lot of rewrites and hard work and discipline and taking criticism. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's like a, a huge secret to anyone's success is uh, I, I started out writing just for me and I often still do. And I will write things that right off the bat, I know they're not commercial uh, there's no audience. There's a tiny audience for it, but I can't resist it because I just like writing what I like to write or what I'd like to see as an audience member. And every so often, it's up to me to listen to a producer and curb some of the crazy shit out of it. <laughs> to try to tone down that imagination a little bit. Yeah. Oh, that brings I- us perfectly into Ghosts of War. The topic I want to touch on first, uh, by the way, fantastic movie. I absolutely loved it. That twist in the end, no one saw that coming. Any Everyone who's watched that I've spoken to who's watched that movie, that is just such an imagination. But Ghost of War, you wrote it and directed it. What is it like to be a part of a project from the moment you put the first word on paper all the way to the final product in the directing process and having total control of it? Uh, You know what it's funny is when I'm writing, I never think of the cast because I saw an interview with Gene Hackman on the movie Unforgiven, like a supplement where they interviewed him. And he's like, I hate it when people come up to me and tell me that they wrote a screenplay just for me. I hate that. I want to be an actor that I want to find a role that I like and become somebody different. I don't want you writing for me. So when I heard that, I'm like, okay, I don't think of actors. And I swear in my mind, no matter how I pictured this chateau and the setting in my head. And even though I had the control to go, okay, I want a tree here and a house there. It's, it's totally not the same. I am, I am not Kubrick who probably, or Spielberg who probably, the minute they write something, when they do write, like Close Encounters, they probably can see exactly what it's going to look like in the editing room. And I am not that guy. I, I think I know just what the script will be. And I'll focus just on that. And then the minute I get to locations, my head starts to swim. And, I, and I'm like, wait, what was I thinking when I wrote that, you know, a year ago? Did I want the doors on the right? Is it spookier to be on the right or dead center or the left a little bit? Um, but it, it's the, I think the best part of writing and directing that I honestly don't know how directors who don't write their own material do it yeah. is I love working with the actors and they will always, especially for something like Ghost of War, 
which each actor is in a sense playing two characters. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind going spoilerific on this. No, yeah. Because when, when it first came out, I had to do like 50 interviews and every one of them, I'm like, yeah, I guess we're not going to talk about the twist ending. And I'm like, and today is the day. Today I is the day. I finally get to talk we, about We it. can let it all out. And <laughs> uh, so you mentioned casting. Uh, did you have total say in who, it was a very talented cast, by the way. Did you have total say on who got what part? It's funny. I was looking at some old documents, like from three years ago, that showed like some of the original casting ideas that producers have, that financiers have, you know, every it's all got to tick the right boxes. This one has to have that much value. But if you bring in that guy and ask that, you know, it can up it a little bit, but you still have to cross that finish line to get it a green light. Um, and a lot of the actors were not the same people that are currently in the film. Oh. And yet once you start shooting and rehearsing and you can't imagine any other actor for any of these roles, at least in, 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 in this movie, like nobody but Skylar Aston could have been Eugene. Mm -hmm. And nobody but Brendan Thwaites could have been Chris. And Kyle Gallner uh, playing the crazy guy, <laughs> like, oh my God. There were times where he was just so in the zone, like in the crazy, that like the AD is forgetting to yell cut. And like we're just we're just blowing because he's literally just mesmerized by watching the actor, you know, standing about twelve feet away from him. And just even though there's no lines, there's nothing happening, he's just memorized by him. And these actors, every one of them, fell into their like little you know, it's a short movie, so I only got like ninety minutes and you know, to tell a story and about ten minutes to introduce you to these characters. So it's not going to be like television where there's subtle mm -hmm. nuances. The strong ones, Butchie. The dorky ones, Eugene. You know, the, the good guy is Chris Goodson, like Christ Goodson. Like, I'm not leaving much to the imagination. I want you to think you know exactly what's going on because when that twist comes, you just won't be ready for it. Absolutely. You will have been suckered down. Mm -hmm. Path. Absolutely. And that's exactly how it, it, the effect that it had on me. Now, with Ghost of War, is it something that you were commissioned to write or is it something that you did on your own and you tried to pitch it to different studios and such? No, I write a lot of things spec. Most, most of the things I write spec. I just finished a project, which I was paid to do in advance. And it's, that was, it was a really cool experience and I rarely do it. With Ghost of War, it was, this was like four years ago, like before the last election. And the big thing was that veterans were committing suicide at 22 a day. And that just, you know, it was like front page news. And I was just like, wow, okay, other than The Hurt Locker and Deer Hunter, which was made before PTSD was like a thing, like what movies would do justice to let people understand what it's like to have PTSD. And I thought, well, instead of like in Hurt Locker, watching somebody with PTSD walk around an American supermarket mm -hmm. and be totally overwhelmed by all the choices and you could feel you could, you could could feel it temporarily. But I thought, well, a horror movie, if you could put these guys in a horror movie, then for at least an hour, the audience is gonna know exactly what it might feel like to walk around with that syndrome. And I'm like, and then if, and if I pull that off, like 
my work is done, especially once the twist comes and it and explains something. And I think in the original screenplay, well, I know there was a lot more discussion about PTSD proper, how it functions in the brain, why these characters were experiencing the things they did, why Kirk had, you know, in, in the first scene of the movie, he talks about, oh, my, my, uh, my cousin's kid brother tried to hang himself in my uncle's bar. Mm -hmm. And then we later learned that, no, that that's Kirk yeah. who between tours tried to hang himself yeah. in his uncle's bar, in his barn. And it was manifesting through this story of a family member that he couldn't even get right because mm -hmm. he calls him my cousin's kid brother. And if it's your cousin's kid brother, it's your cousin. Exactly. And another one of the characters calls him out on it and he still can't figure it out. He can't break through. And what I liked about the script is that almost every line has some hidden, bizarre meaning like that. Yeah. And most are explained. Some aren't explained. I don't, I don't mind when things aren't explained. I'm sitting here at the Overlook Hotel and those two doors behind me have no business being where they are. <laughs> and those rooms right there are not physically possible because we already know when we go downstairs at the Overlook Hotel, that that is just a blank wall yep. that once you get to the top of the stairway. So, you know, I'm just trying to steal what bits I can from the masters and trying to distill it into Ghost of War. Looking at your background, I'm, I'm expecting a big pool of blood to start gushing down the hallway. <laughs> that was the alternate photo I almost put on, but I thought, yeah, maybe a little distracting. So PTSD, uh, uh, Bravo, first of all, for bringing attention to something that doesn't get the attention it deserves, especially with war veterans. Uh, we all see it on the news. Beyond what you saw on the news, how much research did you personally do before writing this script on PTSD? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I approached it um, first scientifically. Like, I went to learn how it functions in the brain because... People don't understand that prolonged fear like that and for whatever evolutionary reasons um, reduces a gland called like the emalasia glada or something like that, which is the part of all of our brains that uh, differentiates reality and daydreaming. And if you shrivel that up, like prolonged terror will do to anyone who's been in, in a, a war uh, for years or some people, yeah. um, it, it turns off the ability to separate, you know, that uh, uh, just a, a general feeling uh, like they experience, they can, ex you know, people can experience real terror just hearing someone slam their coffee cup down too hard. Like it, it, it prevents like what I have, which is just to tune it out. Yeah. So you're kind of walking through this living nightmare. It triggers um, you. It, tr it triggers and it lasts, uh, especially in men. Once adrenaline gets pumped in the system, mm -hmm. it doesn't dissipate quickly. Um, and then I and then I read, you know, articles as many as I could. Um, but I, I uh, what I don't have is like I did not. I thought about it about like going to you know a veterans home and talking to people. But in my head, I'm like. Man, you know, at the end of the day, you're just being an exploitive motherfucker. Yeah. So you're going to do the best you can with what you have and try to, you know, honor the sacrifice that way. But you're not going to go into, yeah. a, you know, start interviewing people 
and picking at their scabs yeah. for your entertainment. Totally. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally understand that. Uh, in the part of the movie when the twist is revealed, Chris wakes up. We find out it's not World War II. It's actually the modern day. And uh, let me see if I get this right. The story could have been told without giving us uh, that entire backstory of what happened to them in Afghanistan. Uh, I love the fact that it gives us the backstory and it is such a graphic, uh, empowering sequence of events to what happened to these group of men uh, on how they were just caught up in something they didn't sign up for. They were trying to extract this family to safety. It all went sideways. They had to watch them die in front of their eyes. They had a quick split decision to make once they saw the reinforcements coming. Uh, bravo to you to go to go into such detail. I think it's a vital piece to the entire story. How do you feel about that sequence of events when Chris wakes up and Billy Zane tells him, take your time, it's going to come back to you, and he remembers everything that happens? It's funny. When I first wrote it and when we started shooting, it went from all of the World War II stuff just straight to uh, the, the ghost in the house, the mother, holds him up to a mirror and says, remember. And then we go straight to Afghanistan, yeah. which right now we go to the the, uh, the hospital. But right now we go straight to Afghanistan and we play the entire thing out. And then they, which was like 10, 12 minutes, and then they blow up. And then he wakes up in the hospital, like coming out of his induced coma. And... I don't know if that would work. Actually, I tried later in the editing room, like uh, my home system, cutting that. Um, but I wasn't sure it would work. Like, would people, okay, you, you pull the rug out from under them and you go, but wait, they're in Afghanistan. Yeah. And then you go, but wait, this whole thing is from a simulator. And I thought I was, it was literally halfway into the shoot. And I just went, oh, fuck. That's not Oh, fuck. Work. I don't think this is going to work. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I need to, like, mix it up. But I need this information then to come before that. But I don't want to give away too much beforehand. And um, I was I was nervous. I was really nervous as what you could show the audience. Um, because it's a, it's cardinal rule that I am breaking. I'm, sh I'm shifting genres on you, mm -hmm. which is normally a kiss of absolute death. Like, I think I read after this was shot, I read on Rotten Tomatoes, all things that the or or whatever some clickbait things that according all things that have a zero score on Rotten Tomatoes have in common. And I'm like, oh, please don't be what I think it is. And sure enough, it's it's Mother uh, that switches genres. The Darren Aronofsky. It's Sunshine, you know, which starts out as this cool sci-fi, and then it's you know kind of like a slasher yeah. movie on a spaceship. Like, and I'm like, well, fuck, that's what I did. I mean. <laughs> I'm in, but I'm, I'm in it now. I'm in it now. And the producers even tested it, you know, like this, just the screenplay at the beginning. And, and they came to me at one point and said, you ever think about what if we didn't have any, what if we ended it in World War II and that was it? And there were times where, you know, I was like, we should have done that. Let's do reshoots. Let's not do Afghanistan. 
Let's not do the simulation stuff. Let's just be clean and simple because audiences are going to be pissed off. And even though, like, there may be 10% of, like, the fans of the genres that totally get it. Like, well, we don't make fan genre movies. Like, we, we don't make niche movies. We make mass appeal audiences. And you get tested and test scores and test audiences. And I was shitting bricks for a while because, yeah. you know, and I, I've never said this before, but, like, I was really thinking, like, shit, did I make the right decision? Like, I, maybe I should have ended the whole thing simply with some, they, I don't know, the alleviated curse. We've seen that movie a thousand times. Like I could do that. And know? it would have like, been just another paranormal movie. It would have been. Yeah. And with, and the only, you wouldn't even call it a twist, but the variation would be, well, it's soldiers, not a family in Connecticut. Exactly. So I, so I guess that's a little different. Um, and I thought about it. And now that it's all over and behind me, I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, what would mm -hmm. have been the point? Like, at least there was, a point of doing it the way I did it, you know, I mean, I, I, I wanted to get something deeper out of it and, uh, you know, I, I think I did. You did. <laughs> you and, know, but and that, that leads me to uh, a question that I have about the movie because yeah, they wake up, we find out the paranormal events did not happen, but it somehow followed them into their real world, which surprised the doctor the nurse, wait, that's not supposed to happen. So you actually did find a way to bring that paranormal horror element into the nonfiction world when he gets woken up from the induced coma. Uh, are you, uh, is that because of what you just explained about the shifting genres and you wanted to keep that horror theme in the end when they cut? Okay. Okay, now it makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Now it makes yeah. sense. And, and it was sort of like, well, if we... And we shot like three endings. And it was all on the last day of shooting. So uh, the, the alternate endings did not get as much attention in terms of coverage as I would have wanted. Uh, we could have probably pulled it off with, you know, visual effects. We had the elements to do something. But there was a version of this where Chris says, look... If I'm if I'm praying to the devil or saying a curse and, and you know lighting something in a simulator, that is absolutely no different from doing it out of the matrix. It's the same intent. It's the same you know thing that whatever connection to the other world, the supernatural, is is happening. And in one alternate ending like the ghosts show up at the hospital and you just see nurses and doctors being flung to the side as they come in on Chris and then, you know, go to black and there is no sort of return to the sim at yeah. the end. Uh, it's, we just ran out of time and couldn't hoist all these actors and, you know, harnesses and stunt rigs to like pull them out of the way. But I mean, that was one we were definitely going for like, fuck it. Like the audiences are fans and sort of like, drag me to hell you know like yeah. you think it's done and then wait the button isn't the coin thing and like or you know like and and boom and we're still on and as boy you're you're the expert you know it seems like 90 percent of of your horror is going to involve freddy krueger at the very yeah. end sucking mom through the window and it wasn't in the script it was just part of a quick two second reshoot but that's what you know that's what made that film you know legendary 
And that is that return exactly. to the supernatural. Exactly. And uh, I love how it ends. I really do. When uh, Chris is begging the nurse, put me back under. I can, I can, I know I can help my friends. Because they were, if I remember correctly, they were starting to uh, die uh, on the mm-hmm. table. Uh, mm-hmm. So Chris is begging the nurse, put me under. And as he's being put under, you hear the nurse faintly whisper, but wait, you're going to lose all your memory. So he's going back in, and he has no recollection of what he's going back in for. So we're left, and with this heartbreaking ending, that this person is going to end up reliving this loop for eternity. Uh, and yeah. The, yeah. And it explains the one of the beginning moments of the movie where he sees that shadow man smoking uh, in World War II era, uh, is that the you know the effect you wanted the audience to have that he is going to be stuck in this never-ending loop? Yes, and in fact, we almost took a line that is planted halfway through the film. They're trying to leave the house, and some force prevents them from ever leaving. They keep going in circles and always winding up back at the house. And Eugene says... Well, isn't that what they say? Hell is repetition. Yeah. And we were going to take that line and stick it in of like a voiceover with a little echo. Well, isn't that what they say? Hell is repetition. You know, and just and boom. And like, we get it. But yeah, that was it was meant to be sort of, you know, tragic. Really? I mean, it's it's a big fan of Greek tragedy, Shakespearean tragedy. And, and the one thing this, this hero needs to do is remember his sins, and at the very end, he doesn't. So he is destined to just go and over it. and over. Yeah. Now, uh, I believe the final scene before he cuts the credits is we see the Helwig family in that little simulator part uh, coming almost into the real world. Do you want the audience to come up with their own conclusions on that? Uh, you know, that there is no set answer. You don't have uh, uh, the answer to what... Did they come, Did they cross over from the simulation into reality? Did they not? What is uh, them showing up just before the credits roll? What does that mean? Uh, why did all those events start occurring in that hospital room? Do you want the audience walking away and just let them reach their own conclusion? Is that what you were aiming for? You know, sometimes I do love ambiguity. Like, it's what makes films great. The end of The Graduate, you know, that ambiguous ending. I just saw a movie together, together. Uh, My girlfriend and I rented it for six bucks on Apple TV. It's a little too ambiguous, the ending on that one. It's not hard. It's just, you know, it's it's just fun. But, um, and, you know, The Shining, okay, super ambiguous ending there. and I would love to see the footage that was cut at the very end, uh, you know, when Ullman comes back and meets uh, Shelley Duvall, Wendy, yeah. at the at the hospital. Oh, I would kill to see that. But this, um, I felt, no, there there is an answer. I don't mind. The answer may change the day of the week, but <laughs> for me. But um, I mean, I really what what I felt was you have a simulator which has its own rules. And the simulator, what we know is um, when Eugene, who speaks 
multiple languages in real life is in the simulator and he opens up a book and it's written in German. Well, the words are right there. It's like the simulator read, took part of everyone's brain, everyone's personalities, turns it into the soup of this squad. So the German words appear. When Eugene goes upstairs to get a lighter and Chris is downstairs, he picks up the journal and starts thumbing through and there's no words there anymore. It's because Eugene's not there to project his subconscious interpretation onto those pages. Mm -hmm. And and that is sort of the, I mean, it's pretty heady. And I would, I've never explained it before, except maybe to the producers. Um, but I felt that the simulation just uses what we all have, all of our experiences and personalities and, and most memories Though it obscures the memories as best as it can, it's like it went into the into the uh, to the firewall and clamped it down and said, "Okay, no real world memories," um, which is why these characters have memories like a dream, like uh, of oh, when I was a kid, I saw Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy. Yeah. Well, that actually came out in 1950, but if I were a 25 year old today in Afghanistan trying to imagine the kind of things that my 1944 self might be watching, I wouldn't know when Abbott and Costello met, Meet the Mummy came out. So I might have said that. I might have just confused it in my head. Yeah. And, and for this, I believe, these characters, the, the Hellwigs, were so embedded in the guilt and subconscious of all five characters that they just simply manifested, like the German words on the page. They became, within the sim, actual characters. Uh, so that, yes, they may be sort of interacting like ghosts in a, in a matrix, so to speak. Maybe they're not fully formed flesh. But according to their subconscious, they're, they're projected into their own version of reality. Because all five subjects have that deep memory of them associated with the guilt, you know, that rules them so they sort of manifest there so sort of these little hints at the end of the film where you see the the that family like trying to break through the sim yeah. like to me that's when their own guilt and shame at subconsciously are manifesting this and giving them power yeah. these non-existent entities are becoming like like viruses programs that then can go back to the other soldiers life support mechanisms and mess with them. So I want that. I did want to keep kind of ambiguous. Are they truly ghosts or are they the ghosts we all walk around with the, our demons, so to speak, that are kind of manifesting within the machine. Exactly. And I think there's a little, there's a great undertone here, whether it was intended uh, by you as the writer or not, that man and all the technology that humans develop there are unforeseen consequences. Uh, even though we try to do good with technology, uh, there's always uh, a drawback. There's always something that can go wrong. And I don't know if that was your intention in the ending, uh, but it uh, I felt it come through that be careful what you build because it might come back and bite you in the ass at the end. Uh, I feel like that is the theme. I mean, that's like that's a great point. And no, I didn't think about it. And you're bringing it up right now, and I'm thinking, well, 
You know, if I all my favorite sci-fi, Minority Report, oh, yeah. what's the problem? The villain, they didn't anticipate that the villain would make a commit a human error and then tamper with the program. Like at the end of the day, it's always man. Yeah. It's always man who's meddling with technology, creates Terminator 2. Exactly. You know, Skynet goes off the rails. Like, I feel like that is a theme that maybe was in the zeitgeist and I just breathed in the air of it. Uh, when, when doing this. So one of my favorite actors, uh, Billy Zane, uh, I've watched Billy since oh, a long time ago. I forgot the movie where he was in with Nicole Kidman on the boat. Dead Calm. Dead Calm. Dead Calm. Dead Calm. What a great movie. So good. Yeah. Uh, how did Billy Zane get involved in this project? He, you know, Billy Zane had, had been friends for uh, for some years with the producers of the film, okay. uh, Todd Shepard and Shelley Madison. And we just knew at the beginning of this that we wanted we wanted somebody who at the by the end of the film, it was, it was it, you know what it was actually it was interesting because there were it was a it was the trickiest role to cast because you don't want the audience to go, I know that guy. Wait, he's a German major, and they shot him? Ah, can't be. He's coming back, right? And, you know, so, like, it would have been like we we were torn because we loved Billy, We, we but we were like, should we go with an unknown? Like, this might be the only thing. In hindsight, you're going to kick your ass on, on Monday morning. Why didn't you go with an unknown? Because you're drawing too much attention, and you don't want to reveal the twist. And at the end of the day... Um, it was, we, we took the chance at the end of the day. I didn't say, well, I'll take that chance at the end of the day. I said, I, I didn't know, but I do believe now in hindsight, even though some people have pointed out to me, like that was strange. And I thought he would come back, but not in the way you brought him back. I thought maybe his ghost would show up or something, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but obviously, uh, you know, we had, he had to be. The, the, the sort of the narrator, the explainer, the mentor of the entire what what's been going on this movie. So, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a tricky bit of casting. And he he, you know, man, he's he's just a pro. So he just comes out. Oh, and, yeah. And just, oh, and, yeah. And nails Absolutely. And I can assure you there is nothing until that plot twist is revealed, at least for me. That gave it away. I mean, no hints, no clues. Even Billy Zane being the German soldier uh, that gets into the fight and, you know, Chris puts a bullet in his head. Uh, yeah, I'm like, okay, that was Billy Zane. Uh, I know he's an executive producer. You got a little cameo role here. That's cool. Never expecting him to come back again at the end of the movie. Now, you seem, and it's amazing, I've talked to a lot of horror actors that have done you know horror for but you are a true genuine horror fan i don't even have to ask you i can tell just you know by your passion for horror uh do you envision yourself or have you even written seriously to get onto the screen anything that is not horror related in any way whatsoever Yes, is the quick answer. Um, in fact, I do love horror. And here I'm going to pull back the Hollywood curtain just a little bit. Horror 
is my wheelhouse, uh, professionally speaking. It's something I love as long as there's some new twist, something different um, that I can do with it. I'm sure every horror fan, horror director feels the same way. Mm -hmm. I don't think people intentionally go out to be, uh, you know, derivative of their own stuff. Um, But most of the stuff I write and I cannot break out of my own uh, horror trappings is not horror. I mean, I've, I, the last thing I wrote was like a Western, 1880, Oklahoma, and I fucking love it. You know, it's just like, I love that. Another thing I have out with a different uh, director, because it's a bigger budget movie, it's sort of like a, a Forrest Gump movie, like truly tear-jerkingly, um, like a Forrest Gump of my generation instead of like my parents' generation, yeah. Forrest Gump. Goes from like 55 to 1981, maybe. And this is more like 76 to 2005. You know, like just, you know, different. 9-11, you know, the OJ chase, things like that. We are a part of Gen X. Right, exactly. And it's a different Forrest Gump. But an equally worthy Forrest Gump has been written by me, I assure you. Probably the best thing I've ever written. Um, and I'm really hoping that it uh, casts up very soon because um, there there's a director attached to it right now. And he's got this incredible vision for it that's unlike any other movies. It's not like Sin City. But when you think of Sin City or uh, Spider-Verse, like that's how out there this vision is to tell this story. And it's, you know, if it ever gets made. It's going to be amazing, you know. Um, and so the answer to the question is yes. I love horror. I, I In a way, I find it um, hard to sit down and write horror more than you would think. Really? I find it like there's, like, I don't know. I grew up with the Coen brothers and the Kubricks, and, like, they never repeated themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they hit on every genre. And I don't have the uh, street cred or cachet within Hollywood to pull that off and write my own ticket and go like, yeah, now I'm going to give you a Western. You know, I would love to be that guy. I don't, I will never be that guy. But, um, but sitting down to write hard is, is trickier because I want to do it differently. I wrote <clears throat> probably five years ago, a movie called the little things that scare me. No relation to, it was probably 10 years ago, no relation to this other, the little things that just came out. Mm-hmm. And since then, uh, one of the ideas that was, that was, it's not ripped off. There's tons of serendipity in Hollywood. But I had, um, I wanted a, uh, a family to go to move into the haunted house. And like when the ghost and Amity Horace says, get up, they do. But then like in Insidious, it follows the boy in Insidious. Yes. And me, and before this is, so this is before Insidious. I know that because if, if I, if Insidious had come out, I'd go, eh, you went down the wrong highway. Been done, buddy. Right turn. Get off that friggin' road. And mine was the ghost. Who says the ghost has to stay in one location? It's found a new host. It's going to follow them to the hotel they're staying at. Mm-hmm. And then when it kills the wife, and the father is held responsible and goes to jail. Now we're going to jail. Now the ghost is following him into jail, which is its own sort of like ghosts of war. It's got its own horror. Like what is more scary than your average person going to jail 
But now this ghost has followed him to jail. And the twist is that this sort of omnitemporal ghost that can see time, past, future, present, present, followed this guy because he needed to, the ghost needed to take revenge on someone in that jail. And it just used this guy like a piece of dog shit on your shoe <laughs> and followed this guy so he could seek revenge. Wow. Um, and, I, and I brought it to a big studio that does horror. And I said, all right, now I've already kind of written the script, but I don't want to tell you that I wrote the script because then this won't be a pitch anymore. You'll just say, all right, send me the script. But right now I kind of want to leave you with more to left to your imagination and excite you. And I talked about a couple of set pieces that could be so terrifying, so terrifying. I swear, scarier than anything I've seen in years. And the reaction from the executive was, yeah, we, no, that doesn't, no. See, uh, it's got to be in your house, see, because we feel we feel safe in our house, see. And, you know, a prison's already scary, so it's not going to work. See, we, it needs to be in a house. And, um, yeah, I probably should, you know, be with a family. And that's when I was sort of like, yeah, man, that's the, that's the fucking problem with American cinema right there. Yeah. You know, and maybe the thing I'm talking about would have been a B, not an A plus, but it would have been something different. It, it would have been something no it, one's ever seen before. It would have been cool. I swear. You know, it sounds amazing. And my, my, I, you know, philosophy on that is executives should stick to being executives and let the creators and the creative process, you know, come up with the creating, but like you said, it's Hollywood. I got, I'm getting, I've been doing this for a year now and I'm getting a hardcore crash lesson on the super highway on the inside workings of Hollywood. So I totally hear what you're saying. Now, uh, one last question on Ghosts of War before we go on, because you've had so many other successful films. Uh, how were you tagged to direct this? Did you try, did you pitch to direct it? It's only your second movie that you directed, or did they come to you and say, you know, we want you to direct it? Yeah, I mean, after Butterfly Effect, which I co-directed with my co-writer, Jonathan Gruber, um, and then we kind of each did our own things because, you know, we, he's got a family, I got my own stuff going on. Like, we, you know, they're, you got bills to pay. It's not easy for writing and directing partners to go that road forever. And... I sort of had to, we both had to like kind of rebrand ourselves from the bottom up. So I, I knew that if it was cheap enough, I could direct it. And there would be nobody better than me to direct it. Mm -hmm. Because again, when actors have questions, I got answers. Because yeah. there's probably for every question they ask, there's 10 scenes I had to delete along the way that will give them a solid answer. So they know in their heads, what is my motivation? Why am I saying that? Because that's crucial to them to know yeah um even if the audience doesn't mm -hmm. know they gotta know it. they're becoming it so um for this it was like a no-brainer i'm like yeah it's it's our and i'm gonna direct it and and the producers of this film were like great you know it was it wasn't an issue at all uh and and that's kind of if i write a screen a screenplay for a movie that's got a budget of like 20 million and up I don't get in my own way. I say you you will find a director that you know is going to you will be able to wave that name in front of investors, mm -hmm. other studios, and you will get that package together, and there will be a green light. And my name is not quite at that tier, 
So I, I just want to be the writer of this and let's all go with God. Doesn't mean I wouldn't want to. It just means in all reality, I don't want to slow down the process. Right. At, you know, and um, but this was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm doing it. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it, there was no uh, pushback at all about it. Good. So good. that, yeah, so that that was really great. And the producers from day one were absolutely amazing. I can totally tell your passion is with writing. Uh, how do you feel being behind the camera? Is that somewhere you feel comfortable with? Uh, having done two movies now behind the camera, do you like it? Do you want to do more? I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I do love it, but like, um, <clears throat> I was watching Requiem for a Dream, the commentary track, <clears throat> and there's the shot where Ellen Burstyn. It's it's this one slow dolly where they build an entire set and Ellen Burstyn is on pill speed and she's vacuuming and she's cleaning and she's doing the dishes and then she's mopping the floor and it's just this one long shot and you hear Darren Aronofsky in the commentary which unfortunately you don't get to hear now that we're not doing DVDs and Blu-rays and it's all over Apple Yeah, but you just hear him go oh yeah I, I just watching the scene reminds me of how Oh, how exhausting it is. It's just so exhausting. I remember this day. And you just feel like he's just remembering how exhausted he was. And that is directing. And that is not writing. Writing, you can run 10 miles, come home and write 10 pages, different muscles in the head. But, and I was, ner I was, I was scared. When I showed up in Bulgaria to shoot this movie, I was like, shit, last time I did it, I was like 12 years younger yeah. and I had a partner and we split off and we did different things. So like, you know, well, God, I'm going to have twice the work to do. And I don't know. I, I have no idea. Can I even do this or am I going to be like passed out and sent to a hospital for operational exhaustion? And, um, but once you get there, it, it was, it was awesome. I mean, cause I, I didn't realize, honestly, I didn't realize how much I feed on it yeah. like the energy comes i was so scared that it normally you have a 12 hour shooting day and i was so nervous that by the 11th hour i, I wouldn't even be able to keep my eyes open i was just going to be so exhausted i'm such an old fart how am i going to do this this is oh, i'm just going to fall asleep and, and, then, and then you get there when there's only one hour left of shooting your adrenaline is like 10 buckets of cocaine. Wow. And you're worried you're going to make your day because now I have 59 minutes and I still have four camera setups and I don't think we can do it. And that guy, he, he just walked into the wrong focus. Oh shit. This was the one we got to back up. And oh God, now it's already, no one's, no one's, no one seems even in a rush, but we got 46 minutes. And like, it's, it, I, I never got tired. I never got tired. And, and as much as I love writing, I'm a bit of a ham and I'm a very empathetic. So whether it's in rehearsals, which I learned on the butterfly effect, like Logan Lerman, no, no, it was John Patrick Amadori's mm -hmm. paying the, the 13 year old Ashton Kutcher yeah. and, and um, Malora Walters hasn't shown up to Vancouver yet for rehearsals. So I'm going to fill in for her, her character that day. And it's a very emotional scene. And, it's one where I want him to have tears at the end. And I just, and I'm like, well, let's, let's just go, let's go there. And I start like 
bawling, right? Like not, but the tears are coming down. And uh, cause her character is bereft and, and, and struggling with, with the fact her son has had a blackout during this mm-hmm. really traumatic event. And, um, and I don't know if it was because he was not expecting to see a grown man, the director, his mentor, uh, 20 years older than him cry, but it, boom, it pulled it right out of him. You know, it pulled it right out of him. And then on the day we shot, you know, Melora shows up. Unfortunately, she hasn't rehearsed this specific scene with him, mm-hmm. but boom, he's right there. He remember like, like muscle memory, his yep. tears come and I'm sitting in video village going, Oh, hallelujah. Cause I never said to her, make him cry. You know, like it, with that, just no time for that conversation. And since that moment, I realized like, I love the scenes in Ghosts of War where the soldiers are lying down in a semicircle yeah. in the field that we will later realize repl- replicates their pattern of hospital beds. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and this is a day that all of the actors, one by one, have to leave the set to get hooked up in their Afghanistan clothes to a rig that hoists them into the air after an explosion. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I keep losing them, and I have to like fill in for them and read lines or do my best because I really kind of suck at it sometimes, but I enjoy it. You know, like feeding lines to the actor who's having his close up at that moment. So I love lying in the dirt, you know, if I, you know, with them, you know, six feet away interacting. And I've heard that so many actors, I think Frances McDormand, I just heard her uh, podcast with her. Um, and, she was talking like, yeah, she hates the video village thing. She's like a real thespian who she needs to feel the eyes, quantum entanglement, if you will. She needs to feel the eyes of the director right beside the camera staring at her. Yeah. She's not going to break and look at the guy or look at the camera, but she needs to feed off the energy that will exist when observation equals interaction and he's staring at her and she feels it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. And when I heard her say that, it made me feel really guilty for all the time I have spent in video village, looking at a 12 inch monitor going, mm-hmm, I like the framing. I like the framing. When I know that Lorenzo, the DP is going to get the framing just fine. Yeah. I really didn't have to be concerned with the framing in the old days. They had dailies. They wouldn't even see him till the next day. So, you know, I, it, it was, a, it was a lesson, but I, I enjoyed directing as much as writing, but it takes a lot more work to accomplish the same two hour event. You know, it might take me three months to write the first draft of a screenplay and another three to noodle with it and polish it. And I can do whatever I want and come back to it. And I'm thinking about it on a motorcycle or in the shower Mm -hmm. and I'll tweak it. But a film to accomplish those two hours. Oh man. Every visual effect, everything it's, it is just, it, it becomes a part of your life, whether you want it to or not. And you are in a way a slave to your own creation because if I read the calendar and it says you got to be in the editing room Monday at eight. And then after that, you're going to the ADR sessions. Like you can't say you're busy. No. You are going to all of these things and they never end. 
and they go on forever, including Saturday and Sunday when you go home and get in front of your final cut pro and start noodling with things to see, wait, did you miss something? Um, so it is, it, it's, it's a lot harder to be a director by far. Uh, that's why I think the writing is a little easier, but I do love it. That's awesome. That's such a great explanation of just the two different aspects, you know, writing and directing. In the time we have left, you have so much other work that I want to touch on. Uh, first question is, did your work on Final Destination 2 influence how you wrote The Butterfly Effect? I wrote The Butterfly Effect. Uh, Jonathan Gruber and I, I should say, wrote The Butterfly Effect seven years before it came out. And that seems to be my magic number. Uh -huh. Like, I don't know if I'm ahead of my time by seven years, but the TV show Kyle XY was written in like 1998. It hit the air in 2006. You know, like there's always just seven years off. The butterfly effect originally ended with the director's cut or the European cut. There was no two alternate endings in the screenplay. There's one ending. And in this ending, Ashton Kutcher's character goes back to his mother's womb and strangles himself and, and is a stillbirth. And it's the anti, it's a wonderful life. So that script was not going to get made in, in Hollywood, but everybody read it. Everybody was familiar with it. Everyone knew that crazy dead baby script. <laughs> so uh, when it came time for... Uh, Craig Perry and Richard Brenner the, over a new line looking for writers. Who do we know that's psychotic enough but twisted enough because they seem to think that that baby thing was funny. So uh, that seems just right up the alley of a Final Destination sequel. Yes. And that's kind of so So if not for the butterfly effect just existing we, we never would have gotten Final Destination 2. And it was and at the same time, excuse me, we did a good job on the screenplay for Final Destination 2. And uh, and Richard Brenner, excuse me, no, over a new time. line, over a new line, gave us our shot. He said, all right, guys, this is nuts. First off, you got to come up with some alternate ending. Uh, you cannot leave me hanging with this dead baby ending and we go to a test screening and people walk out and vomit because of what they've just seen at the end of this love story, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So you, we need an alternate ending and it's got to be good. And that ending is what is now in, you know, I guess most versions of the film and the yeah. theatrical cut where there's no there's no dead baby. Something happens, but there's no dead baby. Uh, but he gave us our shot and just said, all right, if you could just come up with something like that. So so cut to. 2002 Vancouver I'm staying and Jonathan and I are at the Sutton Place Hotel Final Destination 2 is gearing up they're about to make it we've never done this before we're brand new writers and David Ellis the director is letting us come to the rehearsals with the actors and oh my god I can't believe he's like not just kicked us out but he's and then when the actors have questions he just looks at us and goes, well, the writer's right there. Why don't you ask them? <laughs> and then we're like, oh, my God, I can't believe again he didn't kick it. Not only did he not kick us out, he's he's enlisting our help. And, oh, my God, this is so cool. And then we're talking to the actors. And, and, and again, so great when you know the answers to the most obscure question they have. Um, 
And then in two weeks from that point, we got to like leave rehearsals because now we're going into pre-production for Butterfly Effect. And, and it, I mean, it's the career peak of my life is standing on the ninth floor of the Sutton Place Hotel in Vancouver, looking out the window and going, and I don't even think Spielberg's making two movies right now. I mean, well, maybe he is because he released Jurassic Park and Schindler's List the same year. Yeah, and yeah he's done that a couple of times, but okay, never mind that. Like, uh, I mean, like, how did we get so lucky? Oh, man. Uh, now, Final Destination series, it's about uh, premonitions and whatnot. When you were in the writing process, did you take the uh, the approach that there is no such thing as coincidences when you were putting, you know, penning the script to Final Destination Two? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every uh, we probably worked on that for a year. That again, Jonathan Gruber and I worked on that for a year, and you cannot walk into a laundromat and not see. That if someone were to, if someone put sneakers in that machine, that might poke open that door. And when that door opens, like a towel could fall on that wet puddle right there, which is going to pull on that mop. Like everywhere you go, you see death or you're trying to, you're looking to solve the ultimate Rube Goldberg puzzle of how can this most innocuous place result in a death. And I, (laughs) I don't know if it made me a better person. I think it made me an anxious person, but like, you know, whether it's car washes or, you know, every, everywhere you go, you're like, all right, let's look around. Um, and yes, there are no coincidences, especially when you're writing that scene, you know, like, yeah. you know, coincidence, maybe they exist, but not in this movie, not in this moment. <laughs> like not in this universe. Is, yeah. Death is, death is pushing shit around. <laughs> <laughs> Now, can you explain the concept of like the synchronicity and the number 180 being so relevant to the Final Destination story? You know, I did not, you know, that was Jeffrey Riddick that came up with, I think, the Flight 180 of it all. Mm -hmm. And I believe, I think it was still Richard Brenner, again, executive over at New Line, who was on a flight from California to New York when he read the Final Destination script for the first time. Coincidentally, the flight he was on was flight 180. Mm. And I don't know that that's what started the ball rolling and made things weird. I don't, I, I think I would have to ask Jeffrey Riddick to be honest. Uh, I mean, I love the way it keeps coming back. I love, you know, I mean, I, I do love that franchise. Um, but I think he'd be the guy to ask. And I don't know if it's because, like, death does a 180, you know, if it's as simple as that, or if there's something more numerically spiritual and demonic about it, like number 23, you know, I don't know. Uh, so That was an interesting movie. Uh, now, uh, the butterfly effect, uh, after watching the director's cut, we know that Evan's mother has two stillbirths. Could this be Evan's brothers who have, you know, lived similar lives to Evan, made the same choices, come to the same conclusions, and traveled back to the womb and killed themselves? Yes, that is exactly what happened. Like, one brother, one sister, you could have made an entire sequel based on their stories. 
you know, sort of a prequel since they happened technically yeah. before he was born. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly how we always looked at it. Okay, that that does that definitely makes sense. We are almost out of time, but I do want to ask you, looking back on all the writing that has made it to the, the screen, your writing, would you say you have one that really is endeared in your heart more than the others? I, it would have to be the butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that one, people have come up to me years later um, and said, wow, I was on my first date. Well, we, we went to see that movie and we didn't expect that. We didn't expect it to be so heavy. Yeah. Uh, and, and even when I rewatch it, I'm like, God damn, man, that's depressing shit. I don't know that I would do that again. Like it is one dramatic beat after another. Um, but then we went to a diner and we started talking about what would you take back? And the conversation between this couple got really heavy. Long story short, I don't know, they had a great relationship or something. But like, it's the one that endures. And it's the one that I feel is, it's it's an intimate story, but it, it hits people like on a, on a raw nerve. Absolutely. And I'm, I was looking at what like the IMDB uh, critic score is for the butterfly effect. It's a 7.6 with nearly half a million people uh, yeah. voting on it. You know how yeah. rare it is to get a 7.6? <laughs> I do, because I check that shit. <laughs> so that goes to show you right there just the amazing piece of work that the butterfly effect was. Ashton Kutcher, this was really during his big heyday uh, back then. Amazing work. Evan, we are out of time. I could swear we can literally go on for another three hours. Well, I wait. I want to bring up something with you because I was listening to another podcast. Total, total tangent has nothing to do with me. It was a really interesting discussion you were having. It was a list of horror movie villains that weren't that weren't really the bad guys. Yeah, it is. You know, which I I I, I loved, and I think number one was Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, it, it then I don't know. It, and then I was it came up in another list too because, like I said, I, I I do I do watch and listen, and you know it's one of the best horror. And I have to say, even though right now anyone watching this may go, "Wow, this Eric guy seemed really nice," right until the last minute. But I I have to venture out. Um, Carrie as a child was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. I hit frame advance when I knew, someone already told me, everyone knew the hand was going to come out of the grave. So when Amy Irving's walking through a cemetery, I hit pause. And for hours I went frame by frame by frame because I was scared. I didn't want it to just jump up and scare me when it came out of the grave. So I went frame and then you see the rocks move. In one frame I'm like, I'm terrified. I hit frame again and it's like Stephen King's The Sun Dog. You advance the photos one frame and it gets good. Freakier, freakier, and okay. So granted, terrified me as a kid. Yeah. I watched that movie not long ago, and I defy anybody to say when is that movie scary. Only they're all gonna laugh at you. They're all gonna laugh at you. They're all gonna laugh at you. Really creepy. Really creepy. It is not scary. A full hour and twenty minutes. It's a great drama. It's wonderful. Psychological. Drama. It's, it's it's psychological. But scary? Not at all. And, I, you know, my 13-year-old my self is going, shut up, man. I was terrified. But as an adult, I'm going, no, I love the movie. And Stephen King is the best author of all time. And he kills Shakespeare and, and all of that. No doubt. But, like, 
It's not a scary movie. It's 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 an it's an intriguing movie. Yeah. Not scary. Not even horror. That's how really. I feel about Jaws. To me, Jaws is not and a horror movie. And you said that, and, and that like that totally threw me because I'm like, wow. Okay, you're right. You said for drama first and foremost, maybe thriller. Mm -hmm. Literally the day I heard it, uh, someone was watching Jaws where I was, and I sat down and watched, you know, minute 20 through minute 45 or so. And like, you know, all-time favorite top five movies. But yeah, I mean, it's not horror. I mean, it's I and, and I, I see what you're saying. It's it's not horror. It doesn't feel horror-y. Thriller, it's scary. Yeah. I won't say it's not scary, but it's not horror in the truest sense of the word. Yeah, for me, horror, it, it has nothing to do with blood, God's gore, and that's not what Jaws is about anyways. It just made people afraid to go in the water well, when it first came out. So I guess that is how the horror label got attached to it. But to me, Jaws, it was never a horror. I love Jaws. Don't get me wrong. I love Jaws. It's just it's not a, a horror movie, in my opinion. Carrie, uh, I absolutely agree with you. Psychological. Uh, can you imagine anybody else in Sissy Spacek playing Carrie? Never. Never. And then you see her in Coal Miner's Daughter. Yeah. You're like, oh, man, that's the same actor. That's crazy. Or Nashville. Mm -hmm. And you're like, man, how's that? How is that, you know? That's why it's acting, I've, I guess. And in that list was Christine. Now, yes. Christine, now, does it surprise you uh, that there has not been anybody else? Because you can tell the story of Christine, how that car became possessed. Does it surprise you that nobody has ever attempted that? Or even Stephen King I, himself. You mean, like... I, I guess I know. No, I never thought about it because it seems to be one of those. Ah, the minute you try to explain why that kid sees dead people, yeah. the movie's over. Yeah, like it's gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna bore everyone. I would you know keep that one thing alive. And to me, Christine is kind of for what it is is kind of perfect in a way that Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, same kind of theme we were talking about. Technology meets evil. So, doesn't work. So as a pure Christine does. as a pure fan, in your opinion, is Christine possessed by a spirit of a human or is it demonic? Demonic. Demonic. It's okay. I, I feel. I never thought about it. I never really thought about it. I know it came out. You know, it's a 1957 Plymouth Fur yeah. Fury Cherry Red. Mm -hmm. uh, came. We saw it crush the guy's arm on the assembly line. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think it was, uh, well, then again, there's that whole story of, the, the, no, no, I take it back. The guy fell in his in love with the car, the original owner, just like Arnie Cunningham, yep. fell in love with the car. So I, the car has got its own seduction exactly. from demonic. And if you don't believe in Satan, that kind of demon, just it's it's got its own force, yep. car yep. force. Oh, man. Effeminate. I don't know. It's great going talking about all these horror movies with you. Anyway, we are past our time. Eric, thank you so much for coming here with us. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, is there anything that you're currently working on that we should be on the lookout for? Um, a couple of things that I'm not supposed to talk about. I okay. swear, when I hear someone else say that, I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> but 
It's not. It's not up to uh, me. I know. I, I'd be. I'd be a blabbing fool. I totally I get it. Totally get it. Eric, thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Till tomorrow, guys. Stay safe. And on behalf of Eric, Eric and myself, stay walking. Good night.